Imperial Media presents The Brooke Taylor Show Encounter, Adventure, Evangelize And now your host, Brooke Taylor Welcome, welcome, welcome to The Brooke Taylor Show A brand new season and so much in store I want to start out first of all by thanking a brand new sponsor to the program Select Tours International You will be hearing a lot more about them in the upcoming season And it is an honor to welcome them aboard And this is the season premiere of the program So there's a lot to pack in And pack is the operative word We are now on our Lenten pilgrimage. I was thinking back last year on Ash Wednesday, I had the very surreal blessing of being on top of Mount Tabor for the Mass of Father John Michael Paul, our pilgrimage spiritual director and our group. And even though there's no physical trip planned this Lent, we are all embarking on a spiritual pilgrimage beginning today. And there are so many similarities. I've been sharing this with my team and my family that you get ready for any trip by making checklists. You prepare yourself to pack the right things. And so it is with us. Prayer, fasting, almsgiving, these are our travel essentials. And we'll get into that on today's show. But also, at least when I go on a trip, I love music. And so to have the right soundtrack is important. And that is where today's guest is going to come in. My first interview of the season is with Dr. Charles McGuire. He's professor of musicology, specializing in sacred music. So today we will talk about the history and the beauty, the power of sacred music. And Dr. McGuire has actually put together almost like lecture notes. So I'm really excited about that. If something you hear piques your interest, you can refer to those notes. And bonus, he even put together a Spotify playlist just for our listeners. So you will have access to a customized playlist that he put together highlighting some of the music that you'll hear about on today's show. Pretty cool. And before we jump into that, I also want to mention something exciting. I previously shared this. I have partnered with my friends at Rugged Rosaries for a giveaway. So this is a big deal. One of the things new this season is you can find all of the episodes of The Brooke Taylor Show now on my YouTube channel. So all you need to do to enter the contest is just subscribe to that YouTube page, The Brooke Taylor Show, and that contest starts on February 17th. It will run through February 24th. I have two of the historical 1916 World War I service combat rosaries, and one is a brass patina design. It's gorgeous. The other is with a Byzantine crucifix. The weight of these things is heavy duty, and that's what I love. Quality, you'll have it for a lifetime. So all you have to do is visit The Brooke Taylor Show on YouTube and subscribe, and you are in the running. So we begin Lent 2021, the first reading from the book of Joel. Even now, says the Lord, return to me with your whole heart. And then on Sunday's gospel, we will read about the spirit driving Jesus into the desert. There he remained for 40 days. He was tempted by Satan. I was meditating on this because, of course, Satan is the originator of fake news. And he tempted Jesus with three shortcuts, one based on economics, one based on marvels, and the other on a political road to popularity, the father of lies trying to divert Jesus from carrying out his divine mission. And so too in our own lives, how often the enemy comes to undermine our call, namely to be saints. Theologically, we have three enemies of the soul, the world, the devil, and our flesh. So for me, this has been my guide to begin the pilgrim journey of Lent. 
In what ways does the world, the devil, and my own flesh tempt me? How can I overcome these attack vectors, basically? And that takes some raw honesty, some humility. I think about the negative thinking that torments me sometimes, failures that haunt me, even some things that might seem nebulous like making unnecessary purchases because I feel I need more stuff, taking an inventory of all of those things. Every Lent is different. I think I say this every year on the podcast. We know it's unique. I look at last year and how different it was. I'm definitely not on a mountaintop (laughs) this year. It's been tough. I have been in the valley figuratively and literally. A lot of us are worn and weary. And that is when, and it's Psalms 10.9, the enemy lies in wait to catch the helpless. But I think instead of that kind of being scary, this emptiness that we have or this weariness, it's actually such a perfect opportunity to have a rich Lent because it's precisely when we're emptied that we are disposed to hear His summons and to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So that is my prayer for you, that the Holy Spirit would illuminate the blind spots to see where the enemy is lurking, to offer strength and grace to be victorious. And as we do, at least for me, I struggle with doing it all. We don't need to do everything, just one thing. And we have those three pillars. We have the fasting, the almsgiving, the prayer. So asking our Lord to cast off the cloak of the world and the devil and our own flesh so that we may rise anew on Resurrection Sunday. That is my prayer for you, for me, for all of us as we step off on this pilgrimage. And now my conversation with Dr. Charles McGuire. Today's guest is Professor Charles Edward McGuire, Professor of Musicology at Oberlin College Conservatory of Music. He earned his AM and PhD at Harvard University. He is a scholar, author, and has presented papers at numerous international musicological conferences. He is also a frequent invited speaker for panel discussions, pre-concert talks, and has been a choral conductor and regular choral singer. And believe it or not, I am leaving out a lot of his resume, but hopefully that paints the picture of what a tremendous expert Professor McGuire is in his discipline and just honored now to welcome him to the program. Welcome to the show, Dr. McGuire. Thanks, it is such a pleasure to be here. I really appreciate the time. It's mutual because I just finished a 16-part lecture course with you on sacred music. So I feel like one of your students, which is both thrilling and intimidating. So I'm still learning. I'm still learning. And I can't blame my teacher if I don't do a good job. <laughs> so you know, a little that, pressure. That course, The Great Works of Sacred Music, which is um, available on Spotify and other places from The Great Courses, that was so much fun to do. One thing that's different about that lecture series than this interview today is you were able to sample a lot of incredible great works. And I think more on this conversation, we're going to just point people because some are in the public domain, some aren't. And just for licensing purposes, we're probably just going to talk about it. But as a listener, I think that's exciting to come away and have good homework. This will be homework that will bless you and inspire you. So that's one distinction to make. One of the challenges that I had in just drafting our conversation, the questions here, is how in the world to distill thousands of years of sacred music down to just a basic introduction. So that's what we're going to do with kind of a disclaimer, realizing there's no way in just a 30-minute segment we can cover it all, which is good because maybe we can have you back. But so if some of my questions are a little bit simplistic, it's because I just first want to start at that bedrock beginning, which I should scratch that because we're really going to jump around all over. But I want to (laughs) just kind of preface that knowing what to expect. Let's start with the definition. What exactly is sacred music? 
Right. And that is such a big and thorny problem. So let's start by eliminating some things right off the bat, right? So we're going to be talking mostly about sacred music of the Western tradition today. And we're really going to concentrate predominantly on Catholic composers. So just like kind of in, in general, when we think about sacred music, we start off by thinking about music that has a specific prayerful function, realistically, something that is said to get the congregant or the person that's praying or intercessing for you in the Catholic faith, help you get closer to God. If we start out in the Middle Ages, we have an entire class of individuals whose basic job is to intercess, to pray on behalf of humanity. And sometimes these are priests, sometimes these are monks, sometimes these are nuns. And frequently they used music as a way of both projecting what they were saying in prayer and also, and this is my favorite thing about the Middle Ages, which makes it so different from the day, to slow things down to make the word of God and the word of prayer that much more understandable and that much more elaborate. So we're talking about chant, polyphony, requiem, and that would be in the category of serving a specific function. Right. So in the Mass, as well as another Christian and well, mostly Catholic, but in also in the Anglican tradition now too, the Divine Office, and even some of those prayers, prayer services wind up getting adapted into Lutheranism too in the Protestant Reformation. You have all sorts of different big categories of where music is heard. So there's the Mass, which has to be said every day at, a, at an altar in the Catholic Church. And if you're a, ordained a priest, you are required every day to say or sing a Mass. And if you had the wherewithal and you had the resources, frequently high mass on Sundays, certainly, and sometimes masses during the regular weekday would be sung. And a requiem mass, of course, is a special type, type of mass, the funereal service or a remembrance of the dead. And chant started off being the primary, and in many cases until about 1000, the only kind of music that was heard in the Catholic Church. And then polyphony starts off starting around the 10th century and really generating in the 11th and 12th and becoming really a really big and important part of Catholic uh, music in masses and later in the divine office by the 13th, 14th, and 15th centuries. So if you're thinking about a famous requiem, like say, for instance, Mozart's requiem, that's polyphonic. Lots of voices, lots of instruments, just absolutely beautiful and gorgeous. But that's not what you would have heard, say, for instance, if you were kind of wandering around the muddy fields of Ireland like my ancestors were were in the ninth century, you wouldn't hear polyphony like that. In fact, you might not even hear chant sung. If you went to your parish for uh, you know, your, your little humble parish, the priest might be saying mass uh, instead of singing mass. If you happen to be going someplace with a larger cathedral, now, you know, what was uh, St. Paul's in London when it was still a Catholic church and not a Protestant church, you would have heard mass sung there regularly every day in chant. You mentioned Mozart's Requiem. So today, it's no longer heard in its original context. And right. that, if I understand, would be it's an artifact then because it is not heard anymore in its original context. It would be in a concert hall today as opposed to a funeral mass in a church. Right. On occasion, it still gets trotted out as a funeral mass. There's a really famous um, use of it as a requiem and a remembrance for um, the, uh, the Polish composer Frederick Chopin after he died in Paris. And when John F. Kennedy died, there was a big movement to present the requiem as a memorial to him. And even after the Kent State shootings nearly 51 years ago now, they used Mozart's requiem to mark and memorialize the dead. But yeah, we 
repurpose a lot of Catholic sacred music now because we don't have the same context for it as happened, say, for instance, in the Middle Ages or the Renaissance or any time after 1600, realistically. Yeah, and in the Norvis Ordo, which is what most Catholics experience, the New Order Mass after Vatican II now today, a lot of us do not typically hear chant in a Mass. And that changed after 1963, the Second Vatican Council. So why is that? And I know there's a great, there's a few actually great apostolic documents and cyclicals that talk about this, but maybe just the, the short answer. Well, the short answer is that Vatican II wanted to make sure that the prayers seemed that much more immediate and that much more understandable to the congregation as a whole. And so things that were thought of as a little too old-fashioned and a little too complex were kind of thrown by the wayside. And I can't tell you, I mean, from my personal aesthetic standpoint, I love chant. And um, you heard me sing a lot of it in that chorus. And I, I have made sure that in my professional life, I've actually kept up with ensembles and such that continue to sing chant, but it you can still find it in places. There are still monasteries and convents that still do a matins or an evensong service where they will sing it in chant, particularly during penitential times like Lent. You did such a tremendous job of highlighting some of the most beautiful chant and sacred music and to have lost that along the way because we have contemporary music, which I know many, I worked in contemporary Christian music for a decade and I love it, but part of the root word of contemporary is is temporal. Mm-hmm. And what you have in sacred music is this eternal transcendence that comes with the sacred. So I, I love reclaiming and rediscovering the beauty of chant. And one of the things you mentioned is stylistic uh, additions and functions. And I can't remember now if it's melismatic because I'm mm-hmm. still getting the sure. terms. But you had mentioned in the cathedrals when chant was expressed, there were some I can't remember if that's what it was, melismatic, where it would actually project deeper into the church for people to hear. Can you mm-hmm. talk about that? Sure. So, you know, let's just take the word alleluia, which is like so bedrock and so important. So I can say alleluia, and it takes maybe half a second for me to say alleluia to you. Um, but it's such an important word that you kind of want alleluia to be a word that really rings out and shines forth, right? Because it means basically we praise God, uh, which for most Christians, is probably the bedrock of their faith when it gets right down to it. So I can say Alleluia, and it takes just a moment. And it doesn't go that far. I can scream Alleluia, but who wants to hear that? But if I actually project it by singing it, like say, for instance, in the Alleluia Pasha Nostrum, which is the Alleluia that is for Easter Day in the Gregorian Mass, um, it takes a lot longer if I sing Alleluia. Now that's just the first Alleluia in that chant, and there's a verse after that and another Alleluia, and suddenly one word that you can say in a second takes 30 seconds and you've got another minute of that chant to go. So you're really presenting the word elaborately. You're slowing the word down. You're contemplating the magnificence of God at that moment by using just one word. And when I say melismatic, I can sing Alleluia syllabically, 
So we have Alleluia. We have four syllables. I can go Alleluia, and that's nice. But when you're singing melismatically, you're drawing out the syllables with many more than just one pitch, many more notes than just one pitch, and that allows you to kind of create a sense of hierarchy within the words. In chants in the Middle Ages. The most important words generally tended to have the longest melismas because if it's worth doing in the Middle Ages, it's worth doing elaborately. This is why we have such beautiful cathedrals. This is why we have such so many amazing tapestries and paintings and statues from the medieval and Renaissance eras that are just absolutely fantastic and elaborate. You don't just want to say, "Okay, God is great," and that's nice. You want to actually really project that with everything you do. And using a melisma on a word like "Alleluia" is just one metaphor, one way that that can happen. I wanted to take a quick minute to thank our sponsor, Select Tours International. If you long for pilgrimage sometime in the future, I invite you to go with the industry standard for sacred travel. That is my friends at Select International. In fact, right now they are running a rare special, and that is you can save $500 on your next trip per couple. And this is good for 2021 or 2022, so you can save now and travel when you're ready. We are planning to go back to the Holy Land, Father John Michael Paul and I, October 28th through November 7th of this year. And next year, we will be traveling to Obergramau, Germany for the world-famous Passion Play, also planning to visit Munich and Lourdes and Normandy and Paris along the way. So you can visit my page on the Select International website to not only see the details about those trips, but also reserve your spot, save that $500 until the end of the month. Details are in the show notes today. And of course, you can always visit them at selectinternationaltours.com. You can do a search for Brooke Taylor, you can call, but the information is right there at selectinternationaltours.com. One thing I know you recognize and why I'm often daydreaming about the Middle Ages is because, again, everything was designed to elevate us up, our our eyes, our hearts, our spirits. And Mm -hmm. considering that we in one day see more images than a medieval Westerner would in a lifetime. And so Mm -hmm. then you think of, and I know I've talked about this on the show before, the ornate beauty of the carved altar and the stained glass and Mm -hmm. the beautiful architecture. And of course, then what you're sharing with this chant, imagining that echoing through, it really was effective. Mm-hmm. And everything so beautifully and well done and slowed down, like you said. Now, from the perspective of the church, would you say that Gregorian chant is considered the ideal? Well, it became the ideal. And like a lot of things that happened in the Middle Ages, this was part chance and part politics. So we call it Gregorian chant because we uh, there was a, a series of legends ascribed to um, Gregory the Great, Pope from 590 to 604, being inspired by the Holy Spirit and writing down chant. Probably Gregory Gregory wrote some chants. We know of him kind of more as, as a, a sort of a liturgical poet as well as, a, as well as a pope. But it wasn't until about 800 when Charlemagne was crowned Holy Roman Empire, Charlemagne King of the Franks, so part of what's now Germany and part of what's now France. He kind of organized this territory. And he went down to Italy and had the pope crown him and noticed that the chant that the pope's choir was singing at the Mass on Christmas Day was different than the chant that his own monks sang. So remember, Charlemagne's big important guy. He has what's called an entourage. He has a group of priests that travel with him at all points in times, and they do all sorts of things for him. They write down his uh, 
official correspondence. They sing mass for him every day to pray for his soul. They're intercessing for him. And so he has a pretty good familiarity with the chant that they sing, which was, at the time is now now we refer to this as Frankish chant um, because it took place within this this this, this Franco-Germanic area. But uh, Charlemagne noticed that the chant in Rome was different, and he was wondering why that was the case. Things change over time, and so the way that the chant changed in Rome was different than the way that the prayers and how you sang them basically changed within the Frankish areas. So Charlemagne finds that the chant is different and starts thinking, I would like this chant instead of the chant that I have. And he starts this campaign, really, to get all of his... The, all of the priests, all of the bishops, all of the monks, nuns, with in his own lands to sing in the Roman way rather than the Frankish way. Now we've just talked which about was the Gregorian. Yeah, which is the which we which became known as Gregorian chant. Now besides this, there's chant a chant tradition in Milan tried called Ambrosian chant. There's a chant tradition that existed in Great Britain, particularly um, in the southern southern part of Great Britain called Serum chant. There's a chant tradition in Italy in Benevento called Beneventan chant. There are there were literally dozens of different kinds of chant throughout Western and Eastern Europe at this point in time. And one by one, they all kind of succumbed to Gregorian chant, partially because more people just started singing it and, and Gregorian chant kind of won out. We still have traces of most of these other traditions in places, sometimes in books, um, sometimes in other kind of church iconography, and you can kind of reconstruct them. But Gregorian chant is the one that wound up being used by the Catholic Church in various forms until 1963. I was just going to say that I had a quote. Uh, John Paul Saint John Paul mm-hmm. II quotes Pope Pius X and says, "The more closely a composition for church approaches in its movement, inspiration, and savor the Gregorian form, the more mm-hmm. sacred and liturgical it becomes, and the more out of harmony it is with that supreme model, the less worthy it is of the temple." Pope Benedict XVI agreed. He said, "An authentic updating of sacred music can take place only in the lineage of the great tradition of the past of Gregorian chant and sacred polyphony. The chant is one of music that we inherit from the ancient." church fathers. It is not a style, but the music of the mass itself and sung in unison, which makes it a perfect expression of unity. Right, exactly. So you have all folks singing it together and all folks slowing down and contemplating. So the tradition is so amazing and so rich. And even though after about the 16th century, you wouldn't necessarily always have just chant, you'd have polyphony. A lot of times it was based on the chant itself, and you could still hear little fragments of the chant within it. So you can think of, you know, go ahead, please. You mentioned Ambrosian chant. You introduced mm-hmm. me to that in your right. lecture series, which took me down a rabbit hole because I was so fascinated. <laughs> I, it was obviously named after St. Ambrose, but can you give right. us just a little snapshot of that history? Sure. Well, mostly Ambrosian chant was confined to the area around Milan and its suburbs, so just a relatively small air area in Italy. And Milan always kind of had itself a sort of sense of independence from the Pope and Rome. You know, we follow Rome, we follow the we follow the Catholic Church, but we have our own little traditions here. And Ambrosian chant and the, some of those 
those were prayers and some of those were the music. So Inversion Chant was one of those. And we, you know, one of the reasons that we know about it is because there was an Irish monk that was writing about music in Italy in about 767. And he mentions uh, Chant Italia or Cantus Italia, which later was identified as Ambrosian Chant. And we think that it existed maybe from as early as the second century when Milan seemed to have its own uh, liturgical practice in terms of text. But it's possible that it wasn't until a few centuries later that Ambrosian chant started getting its own kind of kick. And like a lot of chants, after Gregorian chant starts being thought of as the prime chant of the Catholic Church, it just kind of starts to fade out of existence. I mean, by about 1200 or so, almost all of the chant that was being sung in the areas surrounding Milan and its suburbs was basically what we think of the Gregorian chant today. Amazing. I know that we're kind of running low on time, so I'm going to just do a kind of a rapid fire and mention some names of composers, and maybe if you could say a few words about them each. Mm -hmm. And someone who I think is far too overlooked, such a tremendous genius, is St. Hildegard of Bingen. So maybe a few words about her. Hildegard is one of my favorite composers of all time. I mean, she was a composer, she was a theologian, she was a mystic. Even though she existed before the Renaissance, era, when you think about the Renaissance person, Hildegard of Bingen really was that. You know, she was an abbess, she was uh, a nun, an organized, just a, a great kind of sense of how her own community would live, both in terms of just the day-to-day operation of her convent, but also just in terms of what they should pray and how they should learn and how they should think. And she has a number of just amazing chants, not necessarily used for the Mass, but sometimes used for parallel liturgical traditions, like the Ordo Virtutum, which is kind of like, here's this morality play. Here's things about what you should think about and how you might think about living and things like that and how you might think about praying to God. And it's just, it's gorgeous and glorious music. And you know, the Catholic Church is so much richer for people like Hildegard. I'm going to mention someone I'm actually not familiar with, but you mentioned this in an email exchange, Whippo of Burgundy. Right. So remember what I said earlier, if it's worth doing in the Middle Ages, it's worth doing elaborately. So take the Easter Alleluia, Alleluia Pasha Nostrum. Whippo was a guy that wrote these things that were called sequences. And sequences were a way to take and comment on monophonic chant, especially if it was a specific type of chant for a specific holiday, like, you know, one of the important festal days like Easter. So Whippo wrote a number of sequences, including one that directly commented on the Alleluia Pasha Nostrum. So the Prayer Alleluia Pasha Nostrum is Alleluia Pasha Nostrum Christus Umulatus Est, Alleluia. Very short text. Whippo's edition within this was a huge kind of rhymed couplet poem that commented on the majesty of Christ and why Christ sacrificed himself on the cross. Remember I said that the Alleluia Pasha Nostrum maybe takes a minute and 30 seconds or maybe two minutes if you sing it really slowly. Add the sequence into it and suddenly it becomes a four minute work. So what you've done is you've taken one small text and expanded it greatly. You're commenting on the original text. And that gets back to kind of this sort of papal sense. You want to be part of that tradition. In the Middle Ages, you couldn't just replace things because you just didn't do that. But if you had something that would take the original and give it just a little more oomph, a little more commentary, that was something that you could do. And Lippo is a great example of a composer who did precisely that. Definitely want to learn more. That is beautiful just to even hear about. Another composer, Vivaldi. 
Oh, yeah, the Red Priest. I have to laugh every time I think about Vivaldi because a former student uh, where I went to college won $10,000 on a, on, a, on a game show for identifying that Vivaldi was known as the Red Priest because of his red hair. So we think about Vivaldi, if you listen to classical music radio, you think about Vivaldi as the guy that writes all the lovely concertos, like the Four Seasons. The Four Seasons. Like that. But um, as a priest, he also wrote a great deal of sacred music, including a Gloria, which is just phenomenal. And he had a, a a pastoral a pastoral mission he's a interesting guy right because he's a priest he's he worked for a um, orphanage and in this orphanage young women were taught how to play instruments so he wrote an awful lot of his concerto we think for these female students to play and that particular that particular orphanage also had a choir that would sing some of the sacred music he composed and thing and just other things too he also directed at an opera house too so he kind of did everything both on the sacred and secular side and you know he lives at a point in time the early 17th century where sacred music had ceased sorry early 18th century late 17th early 18th century where sacred music you know in venice where sacred music had ceased to be kind of the most fashion forward expression of music and opera had become the most fashion forward expression was for a long time before that if you wanted to like you know like 16th century the in the catholic church if you were a catholic if you were a catholic composer you wanted to be writing masses you wanted to be writing motets which were other little sacred another sacred genre that's used in a lot of different types of services and things because that's where the kind of the prestige was but by the time you get to the end of the 17th beginning of the 18th century the sacred starts giving way to the secular at least in terms of what patrons want to fund the church still exists, which is why you have all sorts of composers, Beethoven, Schubert, writing masses, Mozart certainly as well. Haydn writes lots of them. Uh, Catholic composers in Western parts of Western Europe are writing an awful lot of sacred music still. But maybe you've heard the, a mass by Haydn, maybe you've heard Mrs. Solemnus by Beethoven. But probably when you're thinking about these composers, you're thinking about secular music. Think like things like symphonies and operas and such instead of the sacred. Another fact about Vivaldi, as you mentioned, not only his incredible gift and mission, but I was reading this and just the redemptive value of his work, what he's contributed to culture and art is without price. But what this says when I pulled up an information about the Orphanage Orchestra is it says, with these girls, as you mentioned, they played for religious services such as Compline Vespers and Mass, and even performed oratorios, such as special shows for visiting dignitaries. But what they would do is they perform behind ornate grates. And for Catholics, this isn't unusual because we think of like the Carmelites or many religious orders who are always behind the grates cloistered. Mm -hmm. And it says part of it was to preserve their modesty, but this arrangement also had the effect of obscuring any physical defects of the orphans. Not surprisingly, Mm -hmm. since many of the girls' mothers were impoverished or Prostitutes, congenital health issues were relatively common, but the music that they made and what they produced, again, you talk about elevating us up to heaven. It's really fantastic. There's a beautiful YouTube video where they are performing. I mean, obviously, it's a recreation, but it's it's just to hear the music right. is really beautiful. As we wrap up here, a couple more things, because with being in Lent, I just wanted to touch on Bach. He is a composer I know. I understand read sacred scripture. He studied the Bible, and he wrote the St. John Passion. Now, the Bible he right. used, I will say it was after the Reformation, so this was from Martin Luther's German Bible. Bach was, you know, in the 18th century, so we're talking 1720-something. Set the stage for the St. John Passion and how that was performed. 
Right. So St. John Passion is a very typical kind of composition for Bach, because Bach, working for the Lutheran Church, he was the cantor of the Thomas Kirche, the St. Thomas Church in Leipzig. That meant he was in charge of all the music at the, the two principal Lutheran churches in Leipzig. The St. John Passion, he originally composed it to be kind of the music on both sides of the sermon on Good Friday in the Lutheran Church. And in 1724, he was hopefully, he was, he, that's when the work premiered, it happened at the Nicholas Church, or the St. Nicholas Church in Leipzig, um, with a chorus and an orchestra and everything. And it, it tells the story of Christ's death. And it is a remarkably powerful work because Bach used things that were traditional from the time, like chorales. You know, hymns, basically, as the basis for some of the, the parts of it. But he also worked on things that were very innovative, recitative and aria type of style things. So declamatory text versus melodic text, you can think about it that way. And it's a fantastically huge and amazing work and was performed in the Lutheran Church uh, in Leipzig until about 1739 or so. And then disappears until the 19th century when it's rediscovered. And when it's rediscovered, it becomes an artifact like you talked about earlier. You no longer really hear it on Good Friday, which would have been in its original context, a way to make you as a congregant contemplate Christ's sacrifice, to really think about all of the the, the human tribulations that Christ had to go through and the, the horror of the crowd calling for and condemning Christ and, and calling for his death. It's, it's a great work of just profound emotion. And it's an example of even though the work has a specific function, it's for making you remember and help you pray on Good Friday. It also has a gut-wrenching emotional impact when you listen to it today. I was transported back to those first people who heard this in 1724. Mm -hmm. yeah. And they probably hadn't heard music all week. It's not like today where we just have all these different means from Spotify to the radio station. And then to be seated... And it really is a passion play. It's chapter 18 and 19. I really encourage those to look up St. John Passion. It's Bach and read. But to hear, like you said, the drama, it's mm -hmm. really overwhelming. And just imagining being seated in those pews. I would just, I, you know, if I ever had a time machine, that's one place that I definitely want to go back to. Save, save some room for us, please, because mm -hmm. I think a lot of us would like to join you. So as we wrap up, just a few final takeaways. We now look back at everything we're talking about. You talk about Time Machine, and I think our secular music today, it's almost unrecognizable when you look at the culture of the Middle Ages. When did that really begin to shift? And I know it's a tough question with a mm -hmm. lot of tentacles, but from what we right. have now versus the Renaissance, that landscape change. So there are two things that really happen with that landscape change. And we kind of touched on one of them with Vivaldi. Vivaldi wrote a lot of operas and because that's what was in fashion in the early 18th century when he was composing. So secular music becomes more fashionable to write than sacred music at the beginning of the 17th century and continues to be so even under an age of patrons. But it's really with kind of two other events that happened, kind of the rise of the middle classes in the 19th century, and really the First World War, where the secular music and the popular music that we have today kind of really outstrips classical music and various types of secular classical music or sacred classical music. The troops that came home from the, the First World War, they didn't want to have to invest all their time into thinking about things. They just wanted to dance. They wanted to be distracted by their entertainment. They didn't want to have to think about or study music to 
understand what was going on. So they went for early jazz when they got back, when they demobilized from Europe. And that early jazz begat uh, rhythm and blues and rock and roll and then rock and pop that we have today. Interesting thing about sacred music is that frequently we wind up taking on an awful lot of secular stuff into sacred music, including you know contemporary Christian rock and things like that too. And so I think kind of the it would be unrecognizable to someone from the middle ages but so long as they could understand the words and understand that you were praying to god with it or exploring the majesty of contemplating the majesty of god they'd probably recognize that sentiment last question which ties into all of that for the young people how would you suggest bringing youth into sacred music there is Mm. so much competing for their minds and ears and hearts so there are lots of different ways to think about that obviously if your church has a choir having them or a children's choir or a handbell choir or anything like that, just getting them involved is always a good way of thinking about starting. But also, you know, even for things that are artifacts, frequently churches are the site of concerts of music today, almost always sacred music. If you're having a concert in the Catholic Church, most Catholic churches basically say, if you can have, you're having a concert here, just do sacred music, which is which makes perfect sense, right? It's a sacred space. You don't want to defile it with anything. Taking a kid to a concert in that space can be an amazing thing. Immersing them in the space where the music, in a like space where the music would have been heard. You talk about Vivaldi and thinking about recreating the women behind the rude screen there that kind of that kind of you know hearing a chant in a big open space where it can boom an echo for instance is a fantastic visceral experience as well as a spiritual one and giving the kids the opportunity to have those experiences can excite and inflame them with a passion for it. We were talking before we started the interview about that, and you mentioned this beautiful concert in a church in actually Akron, yes, Ohio, yeah. and. It really reminded me of an interview that I had with a sacred artist, and she said, if you can, put art on your wall that is original, that it's not, you know, a duplicated version of something. And this is kind of what you're saying, where you are in the space, you are there, because even on the radio, it's not the same as being live and hearing an acoustic set or being there. So I think that's a beautiful reminder. And I can tell you that the Cleveland Chamber Choir sang um, part of Ordo Virtutum by Hildegard at that concert, and boy, was it just, it was stunning just to have a stone church and having the music just ringing and echoing off the walls. There's a recording of that particular that particular um, performance up on, on Facebook, too, and it's on the, the Cleveland Chamber Choir's first live album that they just released in December, too. So if your listeners are interested in that, they can certainly find that. Thank you. I will link that up in our show notes. And you said at that event, it was the children that just loved it. We're so moved, yeah. Yeah, uh, it was it was a great concert because the you know people from the parish came and they brought their kids and the kids just thought it was fantastic and just looking at them as during the experience and hearing them talk afterwards it was just it was infectious. Thank you so much for the time. This reminder, your gift to bring the beauty of this art to life, not only for our listeners here today but for your students, for audiences around the world that you reach. How can people connect with you? You can also shoot me an email if you have questions. I love to answer them. And again, you can look at my Great Works of Sacred Music course, which is available from the Great Courses, too. So, And I am always happy to answer questions because I love talking about music. We were blessed to receive a bonus because you sang for us today. So thank you very much. (laughs) That was maybe my favorite part. Thank you. Anytime. 
thank you again to my special guest for our season premiere, Dr. Charles McGuire. Told you we were packing a lot in. I'm doing the old infomercial, but wait, there's more because we do have that Spotify playlist. So so that will be available in the show notes. And if you can't find it, just send me an email at thebrooktaylorshow at gmail.com and I'll send it right to you. Also, also you can find the lecture notes from our conversation there as well. Please remember to subscribe to my YouTube channel, The Brooke Taylor Show. You will automatically be entered into the contest to win one of those rugged rosaries. And you know, with such an enormously packed show, I actually did not even have a chance to touch on the absolutely celestial event that happened on Sunday, Valentine's Day. That was my son Grant's birthday. It was also our daughter Carolina's first Holy Communion, a day that I was not even sure would ever happen, but it did and God is faithful. So if you want to see the recap, the photos, you can find it on my pages, my social media pages on Instagram and on Facebook. And thank you, by the way, for your prayers and for so many of you who joined us in the First Communion Novena. Special thanks to my producer, Mark, for his quick work in dynamic skills. Mark is a producer extraordinaire. So for any audio video needs you may have, check him out at Coming Home Studio. Until next time, friends, God bless you. Peace and love.